This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. An hour before this taping, Facebook's oversight board upheld a ban on former President Donald Trump instituted by Facebook following the January 6th Capitol attack. But don't get too comfy. The oversight board, which Mark Zuckerberg set up as a Supreme Court he could cower behind, has actually just passed the buck right back to Zuck and Co. Now Facebook has six months to define what has been an indefinite ban. That means Trump could be blocked permanently or back online at some point. In the interim, Trump has unveiled his own social media platform. Well, it's more like a glorified blog, but it will surely be appealing to millions. The last time Trump was given a megaphone, he helped usher in lies and conspiracy theories and a deadly attack at the Capitol. So his return to social media, or should I say to the blogosphere, opens up a can of worms about what this means for the Republican Party, for the 2024 elections, and for America. My guest today is Frank Luntz, the veteran Republican pollster and strategist who shot to fame with his Fox News focus groups. He's sure to have a hot take on this and much more. Frank, welcome to Sway. This is a privilege. So let's start off with the news that Trump's uh, new blog. Let's start with that. Rumors of social media project have floated around for a while, particularly since Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube moved to remove Trump from their platforms in the wake of the Capitol attack. Now it has a name from the desk of Donald J. Trump. Have you visited the site? And I'd love your insights on what he's up to right here. I get his emails every day and I read them. I read every single one of them because if you don't, you're out of touch. We have to know what he's saying, whether or not we agree with it. And I'll tell you, there are two things that I've felt over the last few months. Number one is I no longer wake up in the morning trembling in fear, wondering what is the latest crisis that has been precipitated by something he said or did the night before. And second is that I don't like the, and I'll use the phrase cancel culture, although it may not be accurate here. There is a reason why he got elected. There's a reason why he was defeated. And that we have to take both into account as we study him, that he is merely a vessel for those who felt ignored, forgotten, or even betrayed. And he brought so much rancor and disagreement and dissension and division in this country. And in the aftermath, I hope that we don't dismiss it. I hope that we don't ignore it. I don't really fully want to move on because I think we've got a lot to learn. We can reject and probably should the individual, but not reject those causes that led to his rise. Okay. So one of the things he, he that led to his rise was the use of social media. From a someone who gives advice like this, what do you think 
is happening here? He's obviously brought back Brad Parscale, who was very successful in his initial rise uh, as an advisor in terms of reaching out to people. His relationship with people is helped by a digital relationship, and he's used it beautifully, I have to say. Whether you like him or not, he's quite good at it. So you do a lot of focus groups on Republicans and Trump supporters. How is he going to engage people the way he did before? Well, he'll never engage them the way he did before because he simply doesn't have that capability. He can't hop on Air Force One. He cannot dominate the news coverage. He can get a sliver of it and he will continue to do so. He's not going away. This is not someone who can disappear gently into the good night. That said, it just doesn't move people the way that it used to. And with every passing month, he will become less and less relevant. And I know that this is going to irritate Trump voters who will hear this, although the tragedy is that not that many people will. And it's something that we may or may not have a conversation about, but it is probably what bothers me the most, that we simply get our news to affirm rather than inform. We seek to be validated rather than uh, educated. And that's, to me, the greatest challenge right now and why understanding what's happening with social media understanding what's happening in Silicon Valley is not just essential, it is the future of this country. If we do not figure out a way to share ideas, to share disagreements, to embrace that which we do not know for sure, and probably for me the most important, the pursuit of trust. If we don't do that, then we're in deep trouble as a country. So so that said, react to the ban itself and then also what this decision, which is board, which was paid for by Facebook, put in place by Facebook, appointed by Facebook. What does it mean at this point to have a situation where a company can ban a president, doesn't want to take responsibility for it, and then pushes it off to some group that then pushes it back to them? I'm so torn. Mm-hmm. I've been on both sides of this issue. And where I come down, does it promote the truth? Does it share the actual facts? Does it enhance or weaken the strength of the republic? And in the end, what does the public want, need, and deserve from social media? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to duck it. (laughs) That's what you're doing. I'm waiting for, like, and... And and, and I, I just, I recognize those who say this is censorship or this is canceling. And I'm so afraid of that. And it's real. It, it is happening. It's happening on college campuses. It's happening in the media. I'm very familiar with what happened on the editorial pages of your own newspaper. And this is a problem. I also, All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back. It's complex. Let's use a Facebook term. It's a little more complex than it's okay. being discussed in public or I anywhere else. That. All of these things. Some of it is consequence culture. Some of it's cancel culture. But it's been made into these kind of uh, twitchy, reductive terms that, that try to encompass everything, I think, personally. Um, but I do want to get your take on this because I think they have just passed the buck back to Facebook where it belongs. But the problem is, if even if you agree with the decision that Facebook or Twitter makes, the fact that two people in the United States decided the fate of Donald Trump online is frightening, yes. is, is flat out frightening. Even if you agree with the decision, two people made the decision, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. Complex is the right word. I'm not going to use phrases like reductive because that's what makes the average person go nuts. 
That's why they don't like elites. It, to them, it's not reductive. It's does the president have a right to communicate, but does he have the right to tell lies? Which I also think is an essential part of this conversation and the consequences of those lies. You corrected me correctly. Is it council culture or consequential culture? If the president is saying something that isn't true, such as that he actually won in 2020, the election was stolen. And if we know that that's going to cause people to do things that are violent and antisocial and potentially undermine the strength of this republic, which is happening and did happen on January 6th, all of that has to be considered. And my fear is that we have gone to our camps, we have drawn the lines, and you're evil if you think Trump should have the right to be heard. I'm a pollster. My job is to listen to the public. And it is it is our system, our populace right now is so woke and so provoked and so triggered that we can't have a sensible, sane conversation on this without destroying each other. Which you have figured that out. You have shown and and think. But, you know, a lot of it has been from years and years of of pollsters and uh, on both sides of the aisle. Um, You were around the idea of calling global warming climate change and the death tax thing. And so this is what Washington has done for decades. This is not a new and fresh thing. It's just been amplified by social media. Except that whether you call something as an estate tax or a death tax does not lead to someone rioting does not lead to violence. You may disagree with the terminology, but that is not what I'm concerned about because we're going to agree to disagree on a whole lot of stuff. But I think what happens is that it becomes amplified in a social media section. And when I say reductive, I don't mean to insult people. It's like, if you can get it down to a word like woke, it just, it's a signal that, that, that you then can't have a real discussion. But let me, you've been talking about how divided America is for as long as I can remember, and certainly since the 2012 election. How much do you, I, I want to get into why this is so, but how much do you blame, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and Jack Dorseys of the world, these platforms, and how much do you think it's an inevitable shift uh, of people to their tribal sides? Okay, People say that all social media did is give people the mouthpiece to voice what they've been thinking for decades. I don't think they were thinking it. I think we put it into their heads and we put it into them that it is perfectly fine to be rude and abusive to people. And it's not. It's perfectly fine to destroy them on cable news if we don't like them. And it's not. It's perfectly fine not just to dehumanize, but to delegitimize. And I've been doing focus groups now since 1989. So I've been around now, hard to believe, but for more than 30 years. And they are more alarming, more depressing, more mind-blowing than they have ever been in my life. And I have finished some of these where I can't sleep for the rest of the night. I can't, I just, the anger and the viciousness and the personal attacks. And I'll keep saying to them, you're going to be on TV. Your kids are going to be watching you. Your kids are going to ask you why you behave this way. And they'll say to me, my kids are going to be proud because I called those people out. Mm -hmm. What the hell? But one of the things Trump and his team really understood is how to capitalize on a divide and use social media and other ways to do it. The stolen election rumors were particularly effective. And you're seeing that. And I've seen it in your focus groups. I've seen it in my own relatives. They were fine with the election. And then weeks later, we're not like for some reason and something happened. So he planted these seeds and repeated them again. In 2019, I actually did a column saying, 
if he loses the election, he's going to say it's a fraud. He's going to repeat it over and over again. And then social media is going to amplify it. And then cable media will amplify it. And then it'll become a thing. Has this been actually effective from what you're seeing for Republican voters? Because January 6th, did it shake up the opinions of Republicans in your focus groups? Or are we back to it was all justified? It was effective because Donald Trump lost the election in 2020. I don't understand why politicians had so much trouble saying it. He lost. If you are a Trump supporter, you would do a lot more good for your people and your cause by telling people to get vaccinated and by sending those emails out rather than arguing about something that is never, ever, ever going to change. So do something productive. And this so agitates me. That's a nice eat your vegetables message. But is it effective here to get get voters to vote? I mean, because he's using it quite a lot. The big lie. That's the word they're using. Yeah, but he's the reason. I know that he blames Mitch McConnell for losing the two Senate seats in Georgia. The truth is it was Donald Trump. The reason why there is a Democratic Senate in Washington today is because of Donald Trump, not Mitch McConnell. If Donald Trump had not undermined Georgian faith in the electoral process, one of those Republicans, David Perdue, would have been elected. On election day, Republicans had a four-point generic ballot advantage. Actually, on election day, both of them could have been elected. Okay. Both Republicans could have won. But you you quoted a poll from February 2021 suggesting that 76% of self-identified Republicans buy into this big lie. It's our poll. Blog it's post our about poll. it, I guess. Yeah. It's our survey. And yes. That's more high. Than two, more than Why two is it so high? Republicans believe that the election was stolen. So it's working. This big lie thing is working. It, it, it is working. And it's the reason why I'm so torn about this Facebook decision. I know what the long-term ramifications, and I don't know what is the right approach. Do you prioritize freedom of speech above all else, knowing that it is dishonest and deceitful speech, but we don't want to have a chilling effect on the ability of people to speak up, even if they don't tell the truth? Or do we prioritize faith and trust in our democratic institutions and in our republic I don't know what the right answer is, which is why I ducked the question, but not really. I think these are two essential values, the most important values in this country. And as a pollster, I have to promote free speech. I need to know what people are thinking, and I don't ever want them to be afraid to tell me the truth. Okay, but this big lie is working. 76, that's a high number. Will it spur them to vote then? That's, I guess, effective is, I mean, is actually voting Democrats out of office, for example, with this group of people. Or, or actually, I think the greater impact, that, okay, I haven't said this before, this could cost the Republicans the majority in the House in 2022. What Donald Trump is saying is actually telling people it's not worth it to vote. Donald Trump single-handedly may cause people not to vote And he may be the greatest tool in the Democrats' arsenal to keep control of the House and Senate in 2022. If the Republicans lose the majority in the House, they will lay the blame at the feet of Donald Trump for telling people it's not worth it to vote. Am I being clear? Yeah, I got it. So if they win back the majority, they will not win back back the majority. Okay. 
The latest casualties of the big lie have been Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney of Wyoming, Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Romney was booed at the Utah GOP convention, but escaped censure. Cheney has been come under scrutiny as one of the 10 House Republicans to vote for Trump's impeachment in 2021. Now she's under fire for fist-bumping Biden, which seems bizarre. They're not pals, but I, they were just being cordial, I guess. And she's probably going to lose her position in leadership. Are critics of, of Cheney and Romney just the loudest voices in the Republican Party, or are they the dominant voice of the party? Because it seems like it's everywhere, whether it's in California or Arizona or Michigan. Every time I turn on the television, there's some Republican official saying the election was stolen and we have to vote out Liz Cheney. We tend to amplify the voices that are already amplified. And unfortunately, those voices that take an alternative point of view are often either ignored or forgotten. Donald Trump is still the most significant individual within the Republican Party among the rank and file. And he can absolutely positively have a significant, if not deciding, impact on a primary. Still, every day he becomes less significant. Every day his comments become less impactful. But as of today, there is no one in the Republican Party who can challenge him for being able to control the narrative and being able to have sway internally. Yeah, but so what? What's how does Liz Cheney play out? She's very much sticking to her guns. The issue now is whether she draws too much attention to her opposition to Trump and whether she should be more focused on helping House Republicans communicate their message rather than her standing up to Donald Trump. That's a decision that House Republicans have to make. But I understand what the controversy is. It's not just about Cheney's opposition to Trump. It's also about what she does in her job every day. And actually, she and I, we share a number of opinions. We share a number. I, I respect her. So what's going to happen to her, though? What is going to happen? And, and Mitt Romney, what this is, it looks like they're sort of going to go down. I think that Romney survives as a senator, but I don't think he seeks re-election. I think Liz Cheney, I don't know whether she survives in her position because I think Republicans really, they understand where she stands and they they voted for her. They affirmed her. In a secret ballot. In a secret, but it would be helpful to her if she focused on what was wrong with Joe Biden rather than what's wrong with Donald Trump. I mean, the, the idea of move along House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is doing that. At first, he was quite a critic of President Trump's behavior right after the attack. And then sort of, I hate the word flip-flop, but that's what he seems to have done. He's um, got a very tough position right I now. I would agree. I would His agree. Success. You cannot win with Donald Trump. You cannot win without him. You actually have to find some way for these two aspects to coalesce or, or you lose the majority or you can't form a majority. I think he's got the toughest job in America right now. So, but on a hot mic, he noted, I don't think it was by accident, that he had it with her and lost confidence. He has to do this because you, you just said you can't win with him and you can't win without him. What does that mean? What, what do you do then? It means that you have, to, you have to hope that he realizes, that Trump realizes that a Republican Congress is more likely to be an effective critic of what's happening at the border that would more likely to represent the policies, even if they don't represent the personality and the viciousness that
that Trump pursued those policies, that he would be better off with a Republican House than he would with a Democratic House. Trump brought this all on himself, never understood in 2018 what he was doing to actually end up creating a Pelosi majority in the House, just as he never understood what he was doing in helping to create a Democratic, a Chuck Schumer majority in the Senate. Donald Trump has no one but himself to blame. His behavior, his actions, his words led to all of this. And he didn't understand that he was actually sowing the seeds of his own destruction, of his own impeachment, by making it impossible for Republicans to govern around him. And he still doesn't understand it, but it's his own damn fault for the situation that he is in, and it's his own damn fault. Just in his debate performance, in that first debate performance, Trump's behavior at that debate was disgraceful. It was an embarrassment. And that was his behavior for so much of his presidency. He has a legitimate record to defend, a legitimate record of success. But his own demeanor ended up costing Republican seats in the House. Well, it kind of it kind of begs the question, why can't you quit him? Like, what is what is the problem with Gavin McCarthy and the others? Why can't you quit? If if this is the imperfect vessel, as you said, what what is the when you look at your focus groups, when you talk to voters, why can't they quit him then? Because if they quit him, his people stay home and the Democrats win an overwhelming majority in both institutions. Right now, we have the closest, most divided Congress in modern times. If you lose those core Trump voters, you lose your base and you lose the ability to put together a majority. All right. So you just, said that- Just as, by the way, just as the Democrats can't quit AOC, they can't quit the squad. They need them to get their majority. Okay. So you say McCarthy has the toughest job now, putting him in a suit, but, uh, but Fox News host Tucker Carlson recently revealed that McCarthy rented a room from you for the coronavirus pandemic. Carlson alleged that McCarthy was violating ethics rules by living with a lobbyist for Google, lobbyist being you. Um, what is your takeaway from this? I mean, I'm not a lobbyist. I've worked with Google on language. I don't advocate for them. Tucker realizes that he can make any accusation he wants to make. And that cadre, because he's very popular among a certain segment of conservatism. I think Tucker's running for president. And I think that's what he's going to do. And I think he's going to try to demonize and destroy anyone who might stand up against him. And that's all that this he is. Claimed, he claimed that Living Rimage would give you, quote, outsized influence over the Republican Party's positions, I guess, because I don't know, you gave him extra toilet paper. I'm not really clear why that would be the case. But what's your response to that? That is so funny. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to use that line. Use it, go right. I got a million of them. I, I, I don't get it. So what's your response, though? What is This is what's happening. It's a, it's a, it's a play for power from your perspective. This is part of the demonization and delegitimization, and and it's it's tragic, and and I don't know how to stop it. And you just have to, if you want to be involved in the process, you just have to accept it. You and have that, to accept it, and and just live to fight another day, essentially. Which is which is quite frankly hard for me, mm-hmm. because this this is what gives me the headache that I should have spoken up more. I should have spoken out more. I knew it, and I was too quiet. Did you and not want to be a never-Trumper? Is that what you I, didn't want to... But I was because I'm not a never-Trumper. Because I think there are things that he did that are essential. And I think that he's got a record, an economic record, that's brilliant. And I, I applaud him for his willingness to take on China, knowing that the consequences could be his own re-election. 
And so I, there are parts of Donald Trump, of his administration, of his actions that I applaud. But again, I'm a pollster. So really, I, I, I will say this to you on this podcast, but where I stand is not really relevant. It's my ability to read the public. Okay. And my ability to understand what they think and where they stand. And in reading it right now, I just know of the consequences of what we went through over the last six months. It's going to take years to undo. And that's my mission. Okay. I mean, you, you're essentially saying, I like Trumpism, but not Trump. Like, I think that's, I think that's what I'm hearing. Or no. I don't like his behavior, I guess. Same thing that the Facebook didn't like, the behavior, but, which is the man not, as far as I'm concerned. Not, I, I, let me challenge that because it's not Trumpism. Okay. Is that there are aspects of what he did that were very important. My mission right now is to be what Joe Biden said he was going to be and hasn't been. Which is? Which is to find common ground, to find unity, to find a more positive approach to our politics, and in doing so, solve these problems that politicians have decided that it is better to find the negative arguments and to tear people down than it is to find the hopeful, more optimistic, more positive arguments that bring people together. All right. But that is a hallmark of the Trump administration. And after a public brawl with Trump, you effectively called for Fox News to dump Trump, which was a big deal. I mean, you got in a lot of trouble. You ended up doing some work with the last administration, though, at the same time, thanks to your relationship with Mick Mulvaney. How do you effectively square that or navigate that, I guess, is the better way? The fact that you are so shocked that I could work, not you, but people so shocked, so outraged that I could supply the Trump administration with language on spending, with language on taxes, with language on on immigration, or that I could do the same thing with the Biden administration and give them language on COVID or try to find some common ground on immigration that will provide us the border security that we need and the immigration reform that we deserve. Oh, that's both of them in one sentence. I can't believe it. You, just the immigration not. thing you referred to, you you wanted to move the Trump administration from funding border wall to border security. Yes, because I know that you'll never get Democratic support. And do you think he has a chance in the next election? If Donald Trump runs for president as a Republican, he's the odds-on favorite to win the nomination. He could never win a general election, but I can't imagine losing a Republican primary. That's how significant he is within the GOP. And yet he's lost all of those crossover voters that would deny him the chance to win in a general election. So he will be the nominee, but not win right at this moment. I would bet on him to be the nominee and I would bet on him losing to whatever Democratic nominee there was. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Maggie Haberman, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Frank Luntz after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. 
Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. These focus groups you do have worn heavily on you this year, obviously, particularly one you host the day before the inauguration. Let's play a clip of that. Give me a word or phrase to describe the United States of America the day before we have that inauguration. Harold. Turmoil. Camille. Seeking solutions. Jim. <laughs> Divided. Lisa. Deceased. Deceased. Oh, my God. Amen. Uh, Stephen. <laughs> Lost. Spencer. Delusional. This is awful. Why did this focus group almost push you to the edge? Because our country isn't divided or damaged. It's broken. It's absolutely broken. And those words explain it. They articulate it. And I don't have the ability to fix it. It is so bad that someone who spent his entire career on language and messaging, hopefully developing majorities rather than separating people. I don't have the words to fix that. I knew how bad it was. I didn't realize that it's truly shattered. That's the difference between a crack in the glass and shattered glass. Shattered glass cannot be put back together. All right, talk about these groups. Talk about why you set them up and then what has happened. Give some examples. I set them up because I believe Americans should hear what other Americans are thinking and feeling, and they should not be just getting it from the elites. My biggest problem with news programs right now is that you've got experts talking to experts about experts, and you've lost 99% of the public who are actually affected by this. That the average American should be able to hear from the average American at least occasionally. And that is not happening. And then the 2020 campaign, it was the most obvious of all, that there was something happening underneath the surface, which is the reason why Republicans won so many seats in the House, while Donald Trump still got defeated by four and a half percent in the popular vote. I choose issues that are particularly controversial because I actually want to know what the public really thinks, which is why I do immigration, done COVID. I'm, right now, I'm looking at the spending programs of the Biden administration. I do focus groups on the division. I do focus groups, even on focus groups, where I have them react to what other Americans have said and how they say it. 
Something you've been doing for decades, correct? For decades, but it's never been like this. I used to walk away feeling really good. Like this is a good conversation. These people have learned something from each other. And now I'm going to play it to the world and they can learn. Instead, I walk away feeling sick to my stomach. And at one point, I actually said, I can't keep doing this. From the 6th of January through about the 1st of March, I could not do a political focus group because it wouldn't take even a minute for the insults to start. It wouldn't even take five minutes for these 15 or 20 people to be yelling at each other where I could not get their attention. Talk to me about what sets it off, because there was one that you did where someone was trying to give information about COVID, and that was really quite astonishing to me. We had Tom Frieden participate at the beginning of the session, at the end of the session. And he starts by giving these vaccine-hesitant people, he starts by giving them a bunch of key facts, and they're batting them away, one after another after another. I don't believe that. Well, that's what Anthony Fauci tells us. I don't believe him. But what about the politicization or the media's got an agenda? Every possible excuse, just knocking it away. We then have the politicians come up. We had Senator Bill Cassidy of of Louisiana, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, Brad Wenstrup, the House leader of the Doctors' Caucus. So these are people that they might like. That they might like. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. Had COVID. Had COVID. And he turned out to be the best communicator because he talked about the randomness of COVID, that someone who's healthy could end up dying, someone who's sick could end up surviving. And then when it goes back to Frieden, he then calls it the five facts. He ticks them off, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. And that's what did it. You had the politician speaking emotionally. You had Frieden speaking medically. And the combination of the two is what changed people's minds. And sure enough, of those participants, we had five of them At least five of them have already been vaccinated. And these are people who said that they wouldn't just one month ago. So you say the solution is to make this argument personal, not political in this. But a recent poll suggests that over 40 percent of Republicans still say they do not plan to get vaccinated. Why is vaccine hesitancy playing out over political fault lines? And why are Republican men so disproportionately hesitant? Others seem to be moving in the right direction. Because they believe that Donald Trump lost the election because of COVID. And they believe that he lost the election because of how it was covered. And they used an example, which is fascinating. CNN had a ticker of how many people had died of COVID. Fox News did not. The belief is that the virus and now the vaccines have been politicized and are used as a club to beat up Republicans. And that's why Republicans are particularly attuned to this. Now, I'll give you an example of my own experience, which is I went on a show on MSNBC, And on that show, there was a doctor who spent the entire part of my segment complaining and yelling at Republicans for not being vaccinated, insulting them, and essentially calling them stupid. You know that if you call someone stupid, they're not going to cooperate. What does work? There are cash payments. One third of unvaccinated populations said a cash payment would make them more likely to get a shot. Sometimes all it takes is $100. What does this say about the stickiness of these political beliefs? It means that there are priorities that can be more important than just politics. We know that people want to travel and they're prepared to get the vaccine if they know they have the freedom to travel. But don't, don't call it a vaccine passport. If you call it a vaccine passport, the right is going to say absolutely not. 
because that's more government intervention in our lives. And the left is going to say absolutely not, because that's something that only elite, the wealthy and the better educated get, and it's not available to everyone. You call it a vaccine verification. By four to one, the public supports a vaccine verification more than a vaccine passport. It means the same thing. But if you change the words, you get a positive outcome. So don't you find it unusual, though, that for $100, they'll change their mind, too? I mean, in some ways, how sticky are these beliefs? Or are they, is it just about having the belief? It's about the skepticism that you're rewarded in a conservative community because you're saying, I don't trust the government. It's about a skepticism, frankly, in the black and brown communities that say the government has mistreated me in the past. Why should I trust them now? What's interesting about it is that these are groups that normally don't agree on anything and they don't vote the same way. But on the hesitancy of trusting the government within the black community and the Trump community, both of them were very, very high. The difference is that the black community has benefited from public education campaigns, benefited from targeted messaging right to their communities versus the Trump hesitancy, which is condemned by the media. The, the Republican men, essentially. The Republican so it's because we're not, we're not petting Republican white men enough. I don't know about that. They get petted a lot, I find, in my life. But all right, okay. I'll be nicer to my brother. Okay, um, so, so talk about... <laughs> he will not. He's not getting the vaccine. There's nothing I can do. And I'm just, good luck with that, Frank. I'll, I'll leave him to you. Anyway, so how is the pandemic going to affect political viewpoints for the midterm election? You said that, you know, they thought Donald Trump got dinged for the pandemic. Many people feel that's appropriate. Um, many people voted that way. How is it going to affect political viewpoints for the midterm elections? I don't think it's going to be a voting issue. I think the single biggest voting issue is going to be the economy in general and the spending in particular. Our unemployment rate will be down. It will probably be relatively close to where it was before the pandemic, which is a Trump success at 3.5% unemployment. There'll be more money floating in the economy. The markets are up. Real estate is going gangbusters. The question and the challenge for the GOP is whether they will be able to communicate the programs where the money went. In the end, it's actually not how high the taxes will go. This is something I try to explain to Republicans. A majority of Americans do want to raise taxes on the top 1%. They do want to raise taxes on corporations. Okay, Biden's making a big play for voters with stimulus checks, with a focus on blue-collar jobs, with an infrastructure bill that will change climate change resilience, the appeal of Joe from Scranton. Is that, that you think that's going to be successful? That's the message you're, you're putting out there. That will be successful unless and until the Republicans are able to focus on the specifics of where the money went. If they're able to do that, the fact that it is not what the public thinks of when it comes to infrastructure. The idea of paying off people to buy electric cars, the idea that if you register with the union, you actually can get additional government funding. This is not infrastructure. When the public learns the details behind all of this, they're going to be mad as hell. But if they don't, then Biden's going to benefit from it. Absolutely. Who are you going to work for next? Who would you work for if you could pick anyone? You know what? There are a number of people but I'll say one just because he's been prominent in the news. Someone like a Tim Scott, mm -hmm. because he's emotional and he speaks from the heart. Chris Christie, because he says it like it is. A Ben Sass, because he's brilliant. 
Christy Nome because she knows what it is to lead. Mike Pence because he's a moral individual and because he's being attacked by Trump. There are a number of people that I'm watching for 2024. Right now, my project, as I hang up with you, is education, is to try to figure out ways to fix our schools because none of this is going to matter if we continue to produce kids who are not ready for college career or real life. That is a fair point. So you doubt you will work for Trump again? There's no way. Well, I never worked for him in the past. So. Well, I mean, it's giving him the advice on, on stuff. But again, it was I was helpful to Mick Mulvaney because he's a friend of mine. But Trump had no interest in what I had to say. Trump had no interest in my knowledge. Trump thinks I'm an idiot. And he said so publicly. And but I he, that's all right. It's a big group. It's a big group. I carry like, that as a badge of honor. I'll say this, and you can quote this. Donald Trump thinks Frank Luntz is an idiot. I'm fine with that. Well, then, there we are. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Hiba El Arbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Ben Fellin. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Liriel Higa, and Kristen Lin. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with an application to sublet Frank Luntz's spare room, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. But before you go, we've got an event coming up for Times subscribers. I'll be debating my fellow hosts from Opinion Podcast, Jane Koston and Ezra Klein, as well as columnist Farhad Manju about the merits and dangers of cancel culture. Comedian Trevor Noah will be weighing in on the subject, too. It'll be on Wednesday, May 12th. Time subscribers can RSVP at nytimes.com slash cancel culture.